Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo, or to play on a portable player, such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions, or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This program, entitled Living the Virtuous Life, was presented by Father Paul Scalia of the Arlington Diocese in March 2010. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Our speaker tonight, Father Paul Scalia, received his Master's of Arts degree from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum in Rome in 1996. He has published articles in various periodicals, including This Rock, First Things, Human Life Review, and so on and so on. Many of you have heard Father Scalia speak in the past, and I uh, will once again thank him publicly for his support that he has given to the Institute of Catholic Culture. It has been nothing less than visionary when we have faced walls and difficulties. It's been Father Scalia that has consistently said when I've called him, yes. I will speak for the Institute of Catholic Culture. Yes, I will help the Institute of Catholic Culture. Yes, I will join the advisory board of the Institute of Catholic Culture. And for that, we're very indebted. Please welcome Father Paul Scalia. Some of you may remember, as much as you try to forget, uh, the, the movie Titanic. And if you have the unfortunate fate of remembering that movie, remember, of course, you know, when, when the ship starts sinking, which is the best part of the movie, um, uh, they, they show the, you know, men and women racing for the lifeboats and men trying to get into the lifeboats, uh, which, of course, was inaccurate. Uh, that according to the moral code of the time, it's well documented, there's a monument to this effect, that the men went down with the ship. The vast majority of them died. One man who uh, snuck onto a lifeboat is notable precisely because he dressed, like a, dressed up like a woman to sneak onto a lifeboat. And so this error was brought to the attention of the producer of the movie in an interview. And uh, the interviewer asked if the producer had been unaware of this well-documented fact. And the producer said, well, yes, we, we, we knew that, of course. But we chose not to include it because no one would have believed it. No one would have believed, in other words, that such virtue was possible. This evening's talk is living the virtuous life today, challenging the, more, the, the modern culture. Uh, by this point, those of you are who are regulars have have heard uh, Father Hanley and Father Fisher, my good friends, uh, speak on the theological and the cardinal virtues. And my task is to, uh, I guess, tie these all together, summarize them, and uh, challenge the modern culture. Uh, it's not difficult for me to do. I challenge the modern culture whenever I trust in the morning. Uh, very easy. Why would virtue be more difficult in our day than in any other. Virtue is always difficult. This is why 
It is traditionally called the arduous good. It is a good that is difficult to attain. And every day and every age seems to think that it is the, the worst and the most difficult. But our day does seem to be worse than others. Let me read a quote from John Henry Cardinal Newman, soon to be uh, blessed. He writes, All times have their special trials which others have not. And so far, I will admit that there were certain specific dangers to Christians at certain other times which do not exist in this time. Doubtless, but still admitting this, still, I think that the trials which lie before us are as such as would appall and make dizzy even such courageous hearts as St. Athanasius, St. Gregory I, or St. Gregory VII. And they would confess that dark as the prospect of their own day was to them severally, ours has a darkness different in kind from any that has been before it. He was writing 140, 150 years ago. Uh, safe to say, things have not gotten any better. So what is it that makes our day so much worse? There are the obvious things the absolute implosion of the family. Not the decline of the family, uh, the implosion of it. Uh, the complete sexual chaos in our culture, the promiscuity, the, promiscuity, uh, the pornography, and so on. Uh, there's the biotechnology, which throws off any restraints imposed on human nature and says that we can do with ourselves whatever we will. There's just the general coarsening of culture, the coarsening of dialogue, of discussion. But if you are here this evening, if you've taken time to leave your homes on a Saturday night and come into a church, I presume that you already recognize these pretty obvious uh, things that fight against virtue. So I'd like to take this opportunity to bring to your attention some other things that I think are more subtle, they're not so much the content of the immorality in our culture, but they're sort of the medium of it. Uh, not so much the principles, uh, I, I'd like to focus rather more on the principles and less on the particular vices and immoralities. Uh, I'd like to focus on the operating system, if you will, uh, not the programs. What is sort of the general outlook that gives rise to such a vicious culture, and I mean vicious in the literal sense of that word, a, a culture that is full of vice. What makes our times so difficult and virtue so challenging? I think it lies in the fact that the traits and the habits of our culture are strongly arrayed against what is necessary for virtue. Certainly against the particular virtues but against really the operating system of virtue. In the ancient world, for example, this wasn't the case. The ancient world had its problems, to be sure, but at least the noble Greeks and Romans acknowledged virtue as objectively true and as possible. Our culture has certain habits and traits that cannot support a life of virtue. And a consideration of these highlights both the opposition of the culture and the solution that we are asked 
to propose by our lives. So what are these? First, reality. Virtue demands an acknowledgement of reality. Virtue requires an objective good. The Catechism says that virtue is an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. And not just what you think is the good, but the good as it is. And this is why the ancients and the medievals tried so hard to to determine the good to be done. They wanted to know what is good so that they could strive for it and therefore become virtuous. They wanted to know how to live. But what if there is no such thing as good? What if we are fleeing from reality? We don't want to face it. If there is no such thing as good, then there can be no such thing as virtue. Our culture likes to reject good, an objective good, because, of course, that would mean there's an objective evil, too. And to get rid of vice, they say, well, there's no such thing as something objectively evil or wrong. Well, therefore, there's nothing objectively good, and therefore, no virtue. We deny in our culture an objective truth about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. We, we reject that there is something that we can strive to conform ourselves to. And think how quickly we've gotten to this point. I mean, really, it used to be, I'm sure some places still is, and should be in more places, that a father would say to his son, act like a man. And in order for that to have any meaning whatsoever, there has to be a notion that there is such, thing, such a thing as an objective truth about what it means to be a man. Or a mother would say to her daughter, well, you know, act like a lady, or a lady doesn't do that. And what she's trying to inculcate in that young woman is this objective truth and good about what a lady is. The virtues are not nice things to get if we happen upon them. They're the various necessary constitutive aspects of who we are and what we are meant to be. To be human necessarily means to pursue and try to possess prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, and so on. To be Christian necessarily means to possess and to live the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. But if there is no objective truth about what it means to be human, then what are we striving for? What's our goal? What do we labor for? There is no objective good, then everything else is in vain. Virtue is also designed ultimately for the contemplation of reality. This is why Aristotle loved virtue so much. It's because it, it, it's to help perceive what is true, what is real, reality itself. The virtues are ordered towards that end, to see what is true. And so the tradition of virtue, from Aristotle to Aquinas to today, teaches that the goal of the virtuous life is contemplation. In the natural order, according to Aristotle, and in the supernatural order, according to St. Thomas and the entire Catholic tradition, But in our culture, which rejects reality, there is no true way to be human. There's no objective truth about that. Therefore, there is no way to be chaste or to be just 
or to be truthful. It all depends. There's no defined goal, no final cause. What we have in our culture is a crisis of final causality. Final causality is you, you establish, okay, what is the end goal? What's the purpose here? And then you tailor everything to get to that end. But if we reject that there is a final goal, that there is such a thing as what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a Christian, there's nothing to work for. If you're in doubt, try it with a musician. You know, to, if you don't give them like a piece to play, just play something, you know, whatever. If you don't give them something specific to work towards, or an athlete, you know, if, if you just tell them to play, but you don't tell them the rules of the game, or even more importantly, the purpose of the game, then, well, it's not going to be a very fun game. I played cards with my Aunt Carmela one time, 90-some years old, from Sicily. I should have known better, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and she was teaching me the rules as we went along. I said, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> she, she was, you know, cleaning my clock, of course, uh, because, well, the goal had not been established for me ahead of time. If we have no final goal, then there's no possibility of victory. No possibility of accomplishment. No possibility of flourishing. And that's what our culture lacks. Edward Lean, great spiritual writer, I recommend his books very highly. He called this the cult of unreality. The cult of unreality. He was writing 70 years ago or so. He never saw Avatar. And, 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 and he never, like many in our culture, grew depressed when he realized that the planet Pandora was fictional. There is a news report to that effect that many people are experiencing depression because they couldn't go live on Pandora. This is the cult of unreality. Not wanting to be where we are or be who we are or strive to what we are meant to become. And so the first thing for virtue is to realize that we're meant to live a virtuous life, not a virtual life. And our culture is in love with virtual reality, which is, of course, a, a contradiction in terms. We try to escape from reality. Just one more website will do it. The news hounds who are trying to escape from the duties right before them by pretending that the news is more important. And even more ridiculous, they're knowing the news sort of makes the news happen. That's kind of what we're getting into now. Or updating the Facebook page is more important than being charitable to the person right next to you. Twittering, texting, and all the rest. These are ways in which we are entering into virtual reality and have to ask, are these things enabling us to become more virtuous? Or are they introducing us into this cult of unreality which really denies any objective truth? and gets us to turn away from what is real and true and turn to what will just help us feel better or be distracted. So the first thing that we need is reality. Second, reason. The highest natural aspiration for man is to act reasonably. This is the most characteristically human function. 
That is, reason is the highest part of us. The intellect is the highest part of our soul. And virtues require reason. The virtues, the moral virtues, put reason into the emotions. That's what they're supposed to do. And so chastity puts reason into the emotion, uh, into the emotion of sexual desire. It makes reason, it harnesses that so that it is not inordinate or disordered. The virtue of patience puts reason into anger so that it's not an unjust, disordered, or, dis- or inordinate anger, but it is anger in proper reason. And some virtues are purely intellectual virtues. They serve only the purpose of enlightening the intellect. And all of this brings to light the connection between thought and morality. To be moral, to be virtuous, demands that we act reasonably. The intellect and the moral life form one thing. Some virtues help us to grasp the truth, and others help us to live it. The intellectual virtues and the moral virtues. But they form one organic whole, to know the truth and to live it. But notice that this relationship of uh, thought and morality, of reason and action, it works in the opposite direction as well. The more virtuous we are, the more clearly we see things. A man who is not living chastity will not see certain things clearly because his intellect is divided. His emotions and passions are not under control. They're clouding his thought. The more vicious we are, that is to say, the less clearly we see. The more virtuous we are, the more clearly we see. And so someone like St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, he saw very clearly many theologians reason or speculate because of his great chastity. It was his chastity that gave him such great insight to things. St. Thomas Aquinas was blessed with angelic chastity. Virtue is reasonable and it enlightens the mind. Vice is unreasonable and it darkens. So our Lord says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. He who does what is true comes to the light. That is to say, the more virtuously we live, the more clearly we will see the truth. Or another way of approaching this, consider the word our Lord uses in the Gospels, the very first word we hear him speak in the Gospel of St. Matthew, metanoiate, which is usually translated uh, repent or reform. What it literally means is change your mind or have a change of mind. And so it has this sort of double meaning to it. It means to change your way of life, change your way of living, but it also means to change your way of thinking because thought and action are related. Reason and the way we live must go hand in hand. Fulton Sheen had a great line, many of you may have heard before, that brought out an implication of all of this. He said, either we will act according to what we believe 
or we will believe according to how we act. Either we will act according to what we believe, or we will believe according to how we act. Thought, reason, the intellect will be involved somehow, either as the guide for our actions or the follower. And so most people, when they bring up an objection to Catholic teaching, it's not because they spent months studying the question and they've read what the church fathers wrote and they read what the reformers wrote and they read what modern theologians wrote and looked at the resource mont and looked at the the Thomists and the scholastics. No, it's usually because they have charted a certain way of living and now they need to invent a way of thinking to justify the way of living. Either we will act according to what we believe, or we will believe according to how we act. Most of the time in our era, this is in the realm of sexual morality, that people will be compromised in that area, and so they will begin rebelling against the church and her teachings in order to justify their compromised behavior. If we do not act deliberately in accord with the truth, we will end up thinking in a manner that justifies our way of life. Needless to say, our culture does not acknowledge reason as a norm for behavior. Even when it encourages people to do good things, practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker. My bumper sticker would need a big bumper, okay? Because it would be, uh, it would be something to the effect of uh, have a firm attitude and a stable disposition uh, and, uh, to work towards the good and cultivate a habitual perfection of intellect and will to govern your actions, your passions, and guide your conduct according to reason and faith, okay? <laughs> so you would need to drive a Hummer uh, for, for, that, for that bumper sticker. The point is, in order to act in a genuinely human way, our acts of kindness, our acts of beauty, should not be random or senseless. They should engage the highest part of us, our intellect. They should be in accord with reason. They should be deliberately chosen. That's what makes for virtue. No rules, just right another motto uh, in in our culture, well, that doesn't last very long, we all know, uh, if you have no rules. And somehow, the rule of something is, is to be opposed in our culture, including the rule of reason. Unless we have the rule of reason, things aren't gonna be just right. They're gonna go tragically wrong. Reality, reason, and virtue requires also unity of life. Perhaps we can call it integrity of life. And I've already touched on this in the discussion about the unity of thought and action and the organic nature of the spiritual life. But it deserves its own treatment because of the culture's threat to this. So let me first call attention to the disunity that we have in our culture. It's a disunity, first of all, that affects individuals and then the society as a whole. We really have a fragmented way of life. Our thoughts are going from one thing to another. We brag about multitasking. 
that's not something we should brag about because what it means is that our thoughts are divided. They're, they're not united in an organic whole. There's no unifying principle. They're all over the place. And the media that we use every day just exacerbates this. And so people struggle, struggle with wondering, well, what, what is the purpose here? Because they have so many different things going on, everything is so fragmented. Well, what's my overall purpose? What's bringing these all together? And we sort of have a fragmentation of place as well. Uh, really, where do we live? Uh, is it in the car? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're in Northern Virginia, right? Um, is it in the office? Is it at home? Is it, you know, at the gym? Where is it that, that we really kind of drop anchor? It's very sad to see so many homes really not worthy of the name. Uh, they're buildings where disconnected individuals are rattling around, but there's no unifying principle that keeps them all there. The flickering screen that so many of us, myself included, spend time in front of is really an apt image for our culture. The computer screen is always flickering, redraw, as, as they say. It's always flickering, we don't notice it, our eyes are not that sensitive to it, but it's always flickering. And that's kind of our culture as well. We're always going and sort of disconnected, individually and then as a society. Uh, we're really uprooted and fragmented we're segregated in what we do. We have town centers that you need to get in your car and drive to. How central can that be if, if you have to go through an effort to get there? And there's a disconnect at the most intimate part of who we are. A disconnect, a fragmentation of marriage, sex, of procreation. These things have been sliced up and separated. There's no unity among them in the popular mind. And virtue requires something different. Virtue requires a certain unity of life. Why? Well, first, because virtue aims at the integrity and the wholeness of the human person. The Catechism says, human virtues are firm attitudes, stable positions, habitual perfections of intellect and will that govern our actions, order our passions, and guide our conduct according to reason and faith. They bring all of these various aspects of who we are, intellect, will, passions, conduct, reason, faith, bring all of these and are meant to unite them. Purity of heart is to will one thing, Kierkegaard wrote, entire book on it. It's a good way of understanding what the virtues are meant to accomplish within us, a singularity of purpose. We cannot possess, possess virtue if our minds and our affections are constantly divided. Second, the virtues demand habits and repeated actions. That is, a unity of effort over time. We'll never be virtuous if we just do one good deed and then leave it at that. Said, so, well, I was just patient yesterday, and why am, don't I have that virtue yet? The virtues are habitual. There's a unity over time. They are not whimsical or occasional things. They are acquired by human effort, by deliberate acts, and by a perseverance ever renewed in repeated efforts, says the Catechism. A fragmented life never has a habit about it. 
It never has a concerted effort or constancy, the very thing that virtue demands. Third, we need this unity of life because the virtues themselves form an integral whole, an entirety. The virtues travel together. The vices do too. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay, the, the, the vices go together. If you get pulled in by one, chances are you're going to get pulled in by the other. Las Vegas understands this. They, they try to throw all of them at you at once to get your money. The virtues go together as well. We cannot ch- pick and choose which virtue we want. I'd like courage, thank you, but, but no thank you to the humility. There's too much entailed in getting that one. Uh, it's, it's all or nothing. It's a package deal. We cannot select one or the other. You can't have chastity, but then not have modesty. The, the poor woman, Britney Spears, you know, years ago, um, there was, you know, the, the thing was that she was going to wait till marriage. And it was kind of shocking because she was so immodest in her performances. And so here was this huge disconnect between her professed chastity and then her immodesty. And of course, that can't hold. It all fell apart because you cannot have chastity very long unless you also have modesty. And so on with all the other virtues. It's a package deal. They all are meant to go together. And charity is the one that brings them all together and gives them all a purpose. No virtue exists for its own sake except charity. Everything else is ordered towards that. Love, charity, is the form of all the virtues. It's the one that's giving unity, a unity of life to all the virtues. And finally, we need this unity of life for virtues because, well, virtues require a unity of individuals, a society in order to be lived, a genuine society. Virtues are not learned by going to lectures, okay? I think it's a good idea to go to them, uh, but that's not really how they are inculcated. That's not how we become virtuous. The virtues are best learned by example and by opportunities to practice them. And this is the importance of having a society, some unity of individuals, because that society will provide each one of us examples of virtue. We'll run into people who give us an example of it. And society will also give us opportunities for virtue. We'll run into individuals that'll give us an opportunity for patience and whatever else. And so we need this unity of individuals, a society. Consider the description of hell in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Uh, hell was this, this metropolitan area that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because people lacked the virtue to live in common. And so rather than live in common, they kept moving out further and further. It's like Northern Virginia. It just keeps going further and further out. And we have very much a fragmented culture now. We need a unity of life in our culture, in our society, so that we can actually be with one another and by way of that, learn how to be virtuous. This was the instinct of the first monks. I mean, up until, you know, for, for a while in the church, it was hermits who really 
had the greatest number. And then it occurred to some hermit at some point, you know what? <clears throat> I could probably grow in virtue a whole lot more if I had to live with some other guys. And so monasteries were born where these men came together and they learned to live virtue by living with one another and by establishing this community of love that had to display and live all the virtues. That's what a family should establish. That's what a family should be. The domestic church, a little community where the virtues are taught and where they're learned. Next, virtues require docility. If someone said to you, or of you, that you are very docile, would you be flattered? Probably not. Uh, the modern world in general does not see this as a good thing. And we Americans, we don't like this. We want to be original. We want to strike out on our own, do our own thing, blaze a new trail, and all the rest. This doesn't make for good sheep. Virtue requires docility. That is, the ability and the willingness to be taught. To learn virtue, we must be willing to be instructed and corrected. And this is related to the objective norm, to the reality that I mentioned before. We need to be willing and able to be taught what is the norm, what is that standard that we should strive to reach, strive to live according to. And we have to receive that objective norm. We need to be taught about it because we don't create it ourselves. Docility is necessary especially for the charioteer of all the virtues, prudence. St. Thomas points out that necessary for prudence is the capacity to learn from your elders because there's a certain wisdom that goes with years, and we need to learn from those who have gone before us and from the examples of the past. And so this is related also to the importance of tradition. Truth and the objective norm of what it means to be human comes to us from tradition. It's foolish to think that we rediscover it in every age or that we invent it or that we can just open up a book and read about it. No, this truth is handed down by a lived experience. This is the purpose of the family, of the parish, of the community. It is meant to be handing down to each generation the truth about what it means to be human. And each generation is meant to be docile, to receive this truth, to take it in and try to live by it. And of course, in our culture, well, Tradition is not valued at all. Docility certainly is not valued. Anything that is older is immediately suspect. And so what that means is we keep making all the same mistakes of the past. We, we lack the benefit of learning from the mistakes. So there's a superficial sort of anti-tradition attitude that everything must be brand new. But there's a deeper one as well. And this is a real danger in our culture and a threat to virtue. And that is to think that the past has nothing to say to us. That the great figures, the noble men and women of our nation's history, of Western civilization, of the church, that they really don't speak to us today. Thanks be to God we have the communion of saints, 
those men and women who speak to us throughout the centuries. That is really tradition at work and the handing on of virtue within the communion of saints. The story of St. Ignatius is so inspiring when he reads about Saints Francis and Dominic as he's convalescing after battle. This is before he was Saint Ignatius. And he reads about them and he reads their virtuous lives and he asks the question that we should all ask when we read about noble men and women. Why not me? Why not me? What if I were to do or try to do what they did? Why not? And that's how he became St. Ignatius. He was inspired by the examples of the past, the very thing that our culture is in the habit of cutting us off from. Finally, being. Being over doing. Virtue requires that we place being over doing, that we value who and what we are more than what we do. Because virtue is a matter of becoming a particular kind of person, of becoming and being a particular kind of person. The choices we make determine who we are. The choices we make build up a certain habit and a certain character about us. So morality is not a matter of doing things, but of becoming a particular kind of person. And for the Christian, morality is a matter of becoming, not just like Christ, but in a mysterious way, becoming Christ, living his life, living so virtuously that his life is coursing through our veins. We are corresponding with that grace by living both the supernatural and the natural virtues. The virtues inhere in the person. They're part of us. As the Catechism says, firm attitudes, stable dispositions, habitual perfections. Now, I've already pointed out that one of the dangers in our culture is the lack of reason in, in moral discussion. In many ways, we are ruled by our passions, by feelings. But we fail in another way as well, and that's to the, the, the other extreme. We can be quite legalistic when we want to be. So we, we swing between these extremes of sort of a sentimentality masquerading as morality, and then when that is shown to fail, we go to a legalism. Remember Johnny Walker Lind? I think his name was. Johnny Taliban, the American Taliban. Young man arrested in Afghanistan, fighting for the Taliban. Um, he actually was born in D.C., grew up in, in Maryland, or some, for some years anyway, moved out to California. And by all accounts, his family life was terrible. It was very confusing. His father was homosexual and would leave for large chunks of time uh, to be with another man, and eventually left for good. And so here's a young man growing up in, in uh, a family that has no moral structure, and everything is very confused. And so what does he do? He grabs onto what is really a very legalistic religion and the most intense part of that religion, the Taliban. The poor young man seems to have been just looking for something stable, for some morality, for someone to say, yes, this is, this is right and wrong, for something to stabilize his life. So he went from sort of a relativistic upbringing to a very, very strict legalism. And this is the danger that we reduce morality to just a matter of doing, 
do this, don't do that. Why? Well, simply because God says so. Okay, it's true, but God must have said so for a good reason, presumably. Uh, or because the church says so. True, but the church says so for a good reason. It doesn't become true because God teaches it. God teaches it because it is true. God commands it because it is true. Our culture is one of extraordinary busyness, constant doing. A man said to me one time, are you a man of action or a man of activity? Ruined my day. And I hope I've ruined some of yours. A man of action has a clear purpose. He knows what he's doing and he goes about it and he brings everything else into that purpose, in line with it. A man of activity, we we are men and women of activity, rushing around, constant doing, but not necessarily clear why. Our culture teaches us that our value is in what we do, not in who we are. Morality becomes kind of just another thing to do, but not something that actually changes us or affects us. And so it's just a matter of doing. And and in desperate times, morality becomes a, a matter of grabbing for some legalistic structure. Virtues provide the defense against this. The virtues do not simply command moral behavior. The whole point of a virtue is that it enables us to live morally. The virtue is literally a power in the soul that enables us to be patient, to be charitable, to be courageous, to be chaste, and whatever else. They, they determine what we are, not just what we do. And so they place being over doing. Christian morality is not just a matter of do this, don't do that. It is above all a means of becoming Christ. There are moral laws, but these are meant to be interiorized. They're meant to take root within us and to become connatural to our very being, to shape us from within by our adherence. They're not simply to be slavishly kept. Otherwise, we become like Pharisees. So those five things kind of a five-part opposition of the culture to some of the basic elements of the virtuous life. Reality, reason, unity of life, docility, being overdoing. These things are necessary for virtue and also either lost or attacked in our culture. But it's not enough for us to shake our heads And lament this. A long face, C.S. Lewis wrote, is not a moral disinfectant. We will not change things just by lamenting them. Rather, we must acknowledge that the air we are breathing in our culture is poison. And we all, to some degree or another, interiorize the errors of our culture. We cannot sit here and say, boy, the culture out there is really bad. Okay, yes, it is, but we are not immune to it, too. And if we declare ourselves completely exempt from it, uh, well, that's foolish. Especially as we begin Holy Week, 
we must examine ourselves and see to what degree we have suffered the infection of the culture's poison. And so let me propose these five things as maybe an examination of conscience for the coming week. So when you go to confession, when, not if, when you go to confession, you can examine yourself on these things and see perhaps how they've compromised our life of virtue, your life of virtue, and mine. First, reality. Each of us has to ask, am I keeping it real? That's a dated line, I know. I walked into high school to, to give a talk, uh, this is 10, 12 years ago, and one of the high schoolers, he was trying to be a smart aleck. Uh, he raised his hand and he said, hey, Father, why can't people just keep it real? And, um, and I used that as the topic for my talk, and so he was devastated because that, that made him a conspirator to my talk. Um, but it was a great line. Why can't people keep it real? Are we keeping it real? Or are we using the many escape hatches that culture provides us? The electronic escape hatches, so we can be right next to somebody who needs our attention and affection, be right next to that person physically, be emotionally and mentally miles away. All sin is a flight from reality. All sin is a flight from reality, from the reality of our limitations. Adam and Eve were the first, resented their limitations, and tried to flee. What do we need to eliminate? What do we need to cultivate in order to live the reality of our lives? The messiness of our situations. The messiness in our families, in our parishes, father, <laughs> um, from one messy parish to another. <laughs> uh, the messiness in, in our culture, in our society as a whole, in the church as a whole. Or are we trying to escape all of that? Second, reason. Each of us has to ask, am I acting reasonably? Or is my will primary? Am I insisting on my own will all the time instead of seeking what is true? Do I desire of those around me that they do what I want them to do instead of desiring that they know the truth? Or are my passions primary? Are my passions playing me like a drum? Because there's so many of the passions. There's only one intellect in us, only one will, but many passions. And they keep beating upon us. Am I trying to direct these things to contemplation? On the way here, I heard a report about uh, the Cherry Blossom Festival. And I guess this is a new thing they're doing, and it strikes me as unfortunate. Um, I don't want to emphasize this too much. I don't want to sound like a, a grump. But they're going to have park rangers there to sort of give talks and explain things about the trees. And they're going to have like a little sort of interactive thing for the children. I think this is too bad. The great thing about the cherry blossoms is that they're just beautiful. That's it. And we just go and we read the book of nature. And we just open that and look at it and contemplate it. 
and allow God to speak to us through that. Do we want to contemplate God or do we just want what he has to give us? We need to direct our lives and all of the virtues that we're meant to cultivate towards this purpose of contemplation, both the natural and the supernatural. Next, am I living one life or many? In other words, do I have unity of life? And if not, what do I need to do to restore unity, to defragment my life? What will bring singularity of purpose? Well, <laughs> contemplation. Even better, charity. Bringing everything into the great dual commandment of love and measuring everything in those terms. That will bring unity to life. Docility. Am I willing to be taught? Am I willing to be taught by my parents? This only applies to those under 18. Okay. Um, do I still respect my elders, my parents? Am I willing to be taught by the church? Or do I think I know better? Do I insist on having original ideas? You look at the church's history. Uh, great men uh, in the church's history really didn't have new ideas. St. Thomas Aquinas, his ideas weren't new. He just had great, great insight into what the church had been give, given, giving to him. In the seminary, we would have an argument, nice, friendly debate between the, the guys who went to the Jesuit school and the guys who went to the Dominican school. And the Dominicans, of course, were always boasting about St. Thomas Aquinas, rightly so. The Jesuits, well, they were always trying to take down Thomas Aquinas because they didn't have his equal. Um, and, and so one, one of the Jesuit students uh, said, St. Thomas Aquinas never had an original thought in his life. And the Dominican student said, you're absolutely right. Being original is overrated. What we should desire is to interiorize the tradition of the church. 2,000 years of wisdom. We should desire to interiorize that, to be taught by that. Am I willing to be taught? Or do I want to prove myself correct? Finally, am I trying to be? You know, it kind of sounds like you know, like a Woodstock question, man. You know, you're just trying to be, you know. Um, well, God is pure being, so, you know, maybe they were onto something. Uh, do I place being over doing? Do I value who I am as one created in the image of God, redeemed by Christ, made a child of God? Do I value that more than what I do? how much money I make, how many, how many hours I bill, what friends I have, what clubs I belong to, and so on. Is my self-worth, in other words, in being a child of God or in doing a lot of things in the world? Am I addicted to the total work culture that we have today? Constantly going. The great promise of first the Blackberry and then all of its followers, the great promise was, hey, this way you can leave the office 
and get away and, uh, you know, still do what you need to do. Well, of course, that was a lie. Uh, what's happened is it just means that the office has you at all times. The total work culture. Any priest can tell you one of the great frustrations is that increasingly people will say, I can't get to Mass on Sundays because I work. Well, there's the problem. Do I view my moral life as a process of becoming more and more a child of God? Or is it just a matter of doing the bare minimum to avoid immorality? And unfortunately, a lot of times this is what we fall into. So when we priests talk about going to Mass every Sunday, what are the first two questions we hear? Well, the two questions that are going through your mind right now. Father, how late can I arrive? And still have a count. Next, how early can I leave? <laughs> and still have a count. Once we start asking the questions of, well, how far can I go before it becomes wrong? Once we ask that question, we've lost the game. The question should not be, what's the bare minimum for me to do? It should, we should ask the question, what more can I do to be more and more a child of God, to live that reality? I'll end with a phrase that John Paul II used in Familiaris Consortio. Uh, in, a, in speaking to families, he says, family become what you are. Which makes you scratch your head and say, well, how can you become what you are? Well, in this regard, we are the most curious of creatures. Because we have to become human. We have to become more and more human. And, as children of God, we have to become what we are. Baptism is the beginning. The moral life is the living out of that and becoming more and more a child of God. And the virtues are given to us so that we can live that out peacefully, naturally, is, is very much a part of who we are, so that more and more throughout our lives, we should be appreciating our divine sonship more and more, knowing God as Father more and more, knowing our Lord as brother, knowing the Holy Spirit as the soul of our souls. That's the goal of the moral life is to increase in our capacity for that. And so, when at the end of our lives, we come before the triune God, we will look upon God and realize the fullness of what he has made us. Thank you. God bless. But our, our same rules apply. First of all, the question has to do, it has to have to do with the talk itself. Okay, don't ask a question about Russia and the communist revolution or something. Number two, your question has to be one sentence long. If you've got to take a breath in the middle, it's too long. And number three, it has to have a question mark on the end. All right. I do want, uh, you know, I... Um Giving things up for Lent, you know, one of the things that we do in the last two weeks of Lent, of course, is we cover the statues, okay? And in a darkened church where, you know, those of us, where did Father Whitestone go? Those of us who have to go into the church early in the morning and open the church, and it's still dark, 
and uh, you know the statues are all covered. They they're kind of menacing because it's just like these ghosts that are out there in purple. Um, but that's a wonderful discipline uh, because you know it's depriving our eyes of a certain beauty. It's a mortification of the eyes uh, so that we can sort of uh, prepare ourselves for greater contemplation uh, down the road. Question. Okay, it's uh, concerning our virtues more or less. I was just noticing, you know, like the church beforehand, people used to have like communion, uh, you know, uh, just by in the mouth instead of uh, by the hand. Um, maybe can help also just going back to the virtues, maybe just more uh, better worship, or better respect for God. Why can't, I mean, just the churches go back to just going back to communion and, uh, instead of in the hand? Okay, well, I, as far as, I mean, the universal norm, of course, for, your, for the reception of Holy Communion is on the tongue. And, um, and the Holy Father has given recent emphasis uh, to the importance of that. Uh, at papal masses now, when the post Pope distributes communion, he distributes com to communion to people who are kneeling, and they must receive on the tongue. So the Holy Father has given emphasis to that. Uh, while still, and throughout most of the world, there is permission given to receive in the hand as well. Um, what this brings up, however, oh, another tangent, um, is uh, the importance for, of reverence for the life of virtue. Uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, and if you don't know anything about Dietrich von Hildebrand, you can visit the, um, the von Hildebrand Legacy Project, um, find that online. He is uh, a very important Catholic philosopher of the last century, and uh, one of the, the greatest opponents of the Nazis, um, had to flee Germany uh, because, because his life was sought. And he says that the mother of all virtues is reverence. Reverence. And so you can see as, you know, the, the manner in which we approach God um, and even more so receive Holy Communion um, does dispose us to certain things uh, beyond that huh? because it's c cultivating in us a certain reverence. Reverence is, is, is really uh, allowing reality to be what it is and not trying to impose our, our thoughts or meanings or opinions on things and not trying to manipulate things for our own purposes, but revering uh, first of all, the created world, and, and even more so, the things of God. And when we have that attitude, then we are better disposed to receive. We are more docile. We're more able to be taught. Uh, Nascantor in Admiratione, the ancient said, may they be born in wonder. That was the beginning of education, was a certain wonder or reverence for things. Uh, we can't learn from something we cannot uh, be taught, we cannot be docile unless we have reverence for the person, uh, for the teaching, uh, for the object, for the cherry blossom, whatever else. So, Father, you mentioned um, the problem of compartmentalizing our life and having a, the, the integrity of life. Many of us who work in the secular world, the secular world demands a lot for us to be reasonably successful in work. And I think what would be helpful, at least to me, would be some practical recommendations day to day outside of this coming week, but some practical <laughs> recommendations of, of how to really foster that integrity of when we have to flip the switch eight or every eight or nine hours from work back home and all the other responsibilities. It's hard to balance. It's hard to stay sort of in that focused unity. Yeah. What can yeah, we do for my, our, our parish bulletin, I, I, I just recently did a series on what I called practices of prayer and just 
customs that, that help the, the prayer life. And one of them I, I called uh, daybreaks, which are not just dawn, uh, daybreak in that sense, but breaks throughout the day. Certain moments which we stop and we, we remember God first and foremost. And then perhaps, you know, wife, children, you know, uh, other aspects of our lives so that we don't get caught just, you know, I'm at work, I'm at work, I'm at work, and everything else is to the side, but I'm incorporating God into that. The Angelus is one of the most ancient, you know, um, uh, ways of doing that. There's that, that beautiful painting, French uh, painting, uh, called The Angelus, and it just shows a couple in the field, and they have their, uh, you know, hats off, heads bowed, and um, you see a little church steeple in the distance, and they've stopped their work, and they are praying. Um, and it's not that uh, it's not sort of a schizophrenia, okay, uh, but it's what they're doing is they are incorporating God into this very mundane thing that they're doing. And um, I think that most of the work that we in Northern Virginia are involved in is even more mundane because it, it's, it's less tied to the earth. And so there's not as much a connection immediately you know, to the things of God. We're, we're, we're removed. And so all the more reason for us to practice the presence of God and have those breaks throughout the day to pause and have a sacred image by the desk, in the car, um, especially if you're in traffic and, you know, tempted to yell at someone or listen to talk radio and getting angry. or turn off the radio. Um, but, ha you know, have an image there that, that incorporates these things. Um, and, of course, the, you know, the priority that... that uh, you know, I, I knew a gentleman who had a very uh, high-ranking position uh, with the, the prior administration, and he, uh, he told me, he said, you know, I've just made my family a priority. I leave at five. And you can imagine everybody else is looking at him, like, you know, anger, and some are happy because that means that, you know, they're going to get ahead of him because he's leaving at five. But he said, you know what? Uh, my family's first. So that, that, that's another way. But uh, I, I think this, you know, this practicing of the presence of God, these breaks throughout the day, uh, and maybe incorporating an element of contemplation uh, in, in the day. Um, I was assigned with a priest who, who really gave a great example of this. I, first couple of times I like, walked by his room, and he's, he's in the recliner, and he has this beautiful classical music playing. And I walked by, and I'm thinking, what's he doing? Just, just, just loafing. And then I realized, no, actually, he's doing the wisest thing possible. He's taking a break, but he's not vegging out. He's listening to this beautiful music. It's putting him in a more contemplative frame of mind. And uh, this is one of the problems that we have in our culture, uh, especially as regards virtue. We don't relax properly. Uh, we, um, our relaxation is either like extreme sports or vegging out. Okay? <laughs> Neither of those uh, uh, helps us towards a life of contemplation. Uh, and so we go from work, 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 extreme sports, vegging out, and then, and then back uh, and doing it all over again. But never do we just kind of sit... And relax. Go to the art exhibit, the Sacred Made Real, at the National Gallery. If you haven't been to that, go to it um, and contemplate it. Don't just like walk through like Americans do all throughout Europe and go, okay, that's nice, let's go. Uh, um, don't. But, you know, spend some time in, in front of the, the image of our Lord or of St. Francis, and really be drawn in by it, uh, going to a nice art exhibit or listening to music is really a contemplative action and, and can, can help, first of all, take the stress off of, of, of life, 
but also help to foster the proper dispositions uh, for uh, contemplation. And last thing on, on, on this point, um, this is just a shameless bias here, but um, Father Shaw, Father Jim Shaw, a uh, great Jesuit at, at um, Georgetown, he says that really one of the most philosophical activities is watching sports, okay? However, baseball, it's gotta be baseball, okay? <laughs> okay, because you're sitting there, they're, you know, and you're just kind of enjoying it. It's a nice day, they're like, nice downtime, and you, so, okay. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the answer is it may not sit well with your employer, but take a break, go to a museum, go to a ball game, okay? <laughs> Okay, we're going to just take one or two more questions, but I did forget to ask my father to please stand up. Dad, please stand up. It's one thing to be a natural father. It's another thing to be a spiritual father, and I'm proud to say my dad is both. So, okay, a couple of questions. For your talk, Father. Uh, given your reminders of our, our need to uh, to become real in, in our in our own life, or the, the uh, reason, uh, docility, you know, and being, and, and I think your words uh, at the end, the, the contemplation. What is your position, Father, with respect to allowing our children to use electronics? You know, these uh, uh, games, these uh, these uh, YouTube's, and, and all the like, and and, and even uh, Facebook or whatever. Thank you, Father. Um, good servants, bad masters. That's, that's the way, um, in general, we should think about electronics as, as any tool. However, um, I think the media that we have in our hands today is, is, is more dangerous. You know, when, when, the, um, uh, when the harness for a plow was invented, you know, it changed, it changed farming but it didn't really change life that much. But when, you know, cell phones and PDAs and, you know, the Internet and everything else uh, co comes along, it, it changes life dramatically. And um, I don't really see any need for, for kids to be involved in electronics anywhere near as much as they are. There was a very interesting article in the Washington Post, ah, uh, three, four years ago, about um, uh, T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria City. And they have now the most technologically advanced high school. I mean, they're wired beyond compare. But it was, uh, the article had a lot of complaints from the teachers. Because the kids are, you know, I mean, do children really need more time in, in front of a flickering screen? Now, they probably need more time in front of the cherry blossoms. Um, and, and so there's no getting away from it, okay? And... Um, Sabatino and I made the arrangements for this talk by way of cell phone and internet. Okay, it's all right, so it's just a full disclosure. Um, but um, how are the kids using it? And th there should be some pretty serious limitations. Uh, I, I don't think a kid should, should have a computer in his own room. What about privacy? They don't have it. Huh. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, parents should not... Okay, there are immediate moral problems with the pornography and many, many other things that are on the Internet that are really, really, really bad. Not just the pornography, but really just bad ideas and, and other bad images. And ideas have consequences, and most ideas are communicated by images. 
Every advertiser understands this. I get an image in your mind. If you don't get it out of your mind, I'm gonna, it's going to become a thought. And if you don't get rid of that thought, it's going to become a desire. If you don't get rid of that desire, it's going to become an action. If you don't repent of that action, it's going to become a habit. And that makes you a consumer. You will buy what I have to sell, and you will not have brand, brand loyalty. So there, there's, there's that dimension. But um, so there's the content dimension of technology that's a very uh, dangerous thing. But then there's just the means of technology. What does it do? We're truncating all of our speech. I see this in the, with, with the kids, is that they're not able to, to write things out as much. I see this in myself when I spend a lot of time in, you know, doing stuff on the internet, and then I, set, I, I sit down to read, and my mind keeps uh, bouncing back, back and forth. So uh, if the kids are going to use a, a computer, it should be out in the open area. Don't overestimate uh, the, the virtues of your children. Okay? Uh, remember fallen human nature. <laughs> remember when you were their age. Uh, so um, it should be strictly monitored. They need to learn how to use it because it's going to be part of their lives, like it or not. But they need, how to, they, they need to put the technology to the service of the person and not the other way around. Okay? And I don't want to say any more than that because it's actually a talk that I'm going to propose to Sabatino for, <laughs> for later. Okay, last question. I, I wanted to uh, ask about practicing virtues in families. Uh, how would that mm -hmm. work? And would it be <laughs> appealing to people? Would it take you away from your family? Uh, <laughs> the um, great book um, on this point, Brave New Family, put out by Ignatius Press, um, and it is... Uh, it's a compilation, it's a collection of G.K. Chesterton's writings on the family. Articles, uh, poems, things like that. And uh, it has one of his great points, which I think comes from the book, What's Wrong with the World? Which he says, you know, why is the family important? And people will say, well, the family is important because it's so warm and caring and, and it's just, you know, it's just so peaceful and everybody loves one another and... Do these people have families? I mean, uh, and, and, and G.K. Chesterton says, no, the, the family is important for the opposite reason. You can choose your neighbor, but you can't choose your aunt. You know, you've got to put up with your aunt, even if she, you know, she's weird or whatever else. And, you know, you have to live with your family. And that's the beautiful thing about it. You have to learn virtue there. You have to learn how to be patient, as I said uh, in, in, in the church. You, you need to learn how to be kind right there in, in the family. Uh, will it be appealing to people? Well, it clearly is not appealing to some people. Um, and G.K. Chesterton makes it this point, too. He talks about the man who you know, strikes out on safari um, or, or goes to discover the North Pole again. And, um, and he says you know, he's looking for adventure. Chesterton says, nonsense. That man is running away from adventure. Because the greatest adventure is in the family. That's the greatest adventure. This is why, sorry men, but this is why a lot of guys will, you know, stay later at work. I'm really busy. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, but work, the workplace can be easier than the family. You walk into the family, like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> I've got years more with these people, and, you know, at work I can always leave at 5 p.m. Um, and so... Um, 
it's not appealing to some people. All sin is an escape from reality. And many, many people try to escape the reality of the family because it's so demanding. It doesn't just hit us where we live. It is where we live. Um, but we all desire a family. We all desire that. And no matter how much they try to redefine the family, pop culture will always produce like mov movie, you know, these movies pop up. It's all about the family. And Hollywood even will, despite itself, will bear witness to this, this instinct that we have for living a, as a family. So, um, yeah, even though some people do try to escape it, it is, it's a tenacious thing, and people keep um, coming back to it. So that was another shamelessly long answer. Okay, um, uh, shameless uh, advertising uh, for the Institute of Catholic Culture. Uh, Chris Check is a friend of mine. Actually, he's going to be staying with us when he comes into town. He's uh, a great, great speaker. I, I really recommend that, that you come to hear his talks. And uh, I haven't heard him yet. Yet. Okay. So, uh, but um, I want to say just a word about the whole program here. Um, uh, Sabatino was, who are the veterans here? Sabatino was calling it um, catechesis or something like that, which is not really accurate because it's a lot more than that. Okay, I mean, this is, um, you're getting college professors <laughs> coming and giving, giving talks on some things uh, that, that most people are never exposed to. So if you have a steady diet of this, you will know church history very well. Uh, you will know Catholic culture very well. And you'll be able to spot the lies in the media. You'll be able to say, well, wait a minute, I've heard something different. I know uh, I, I know the truth about, about the church's history, or just about history in general. Chris Check gave, uh, what is it, two talks last December uh, on Alexander the Great and, and the Punic Wars. Well, what does that have to do with the church? Well, you had to come to his talks, all right? Uh, but, but just by coming to this, just the richness of Western civilization, of the church, and the deepening, the broadening uh, of the mind. So I, I really encourage uh, attendance and contributions, okay? Uh, Sabatino is doing, doing a great thing. And um, this is a little bit of a surprise to Sabatino, but we're going to have another Q&A. Um, and I ask, uh, you know, anybody who has a question about Sabatino when he was young, okay? <laughs> we're going to have Sabatino's dad come, come here and, uh, uh, okay, that's and he'll answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. For more information, recorded programs, or schedules of upcoming events, visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org.